Welcome to my Dear Kitchen in Helsinki podcast. My guest this week is William Lafleur, an anthropologist and researcher currently working on his doctoral studies at the University of Helsinki. He is also an enthusiastic food geek. Will is using sensory ethnography as a new method for learning sustainability and understanding local food ways. He and I invite you to a sensory discussion which involves a baguette and a burek, and we urge you to do a sensory experiment the next time you're eating something. Hope you enjoy. Uh, hey there, Asli. Hi. How's it going? Well, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting uh, for yeah. this interview to, to have my lunch. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'm, apologies for being a little bit late. I was... Uh, just waiting for this batch of, of baguettes that I've just baked, or attempted baguettes that I've just baked, uh, which I've, I've got here in my hand. Um, you can see it, obviously the people who aren't, who are listening can't see it, but uh, this is a, a baguette, uh, it's a sourdough baguette, um, which I've been working on for the last, year or so on and off um baguettes are really hard to make at home <laughs> so you, you have to make them small for example because nobody has a, a home oven that can accommodate like the really long baguettes that you might see in the store but um yeah i'm gonna start eating this baguette because i'm pretty hungry as i'm sure you are you also brought some food right yes yes i have here uh, I can't hold it in my hand really because it's quite big and it's also a bit greasy. Mine, it's a um, it's a filo burek, like the savory, the general name for savory pastries. And uh, you can see part of it is a bit too brown, maybe because of my oven. Uh, like the uh, one corner of my oven is heating a bit too much, but I mm. think I like it. Sometimes, I mean, in, in a pastry, I like it even more like that, to be honest. Okay. And, um, and the filling, I, I, it's, it's, it's some of the old flavors, but a new combination. So let's see. I mean, I do this kind of uh, pastries a lot because, you know, it's, it's, part, it's a very basic part of Turkish cuisine. But mm. I use a different filo here. In Turkey, we use fresh filo. And yeah, more right. round shaped and you know bigger size, but here I use baklava uh, dough. Okay, yeah, that, that kind of, yeah. and I actually learned uh, how to work with it so much better now uh, than the other one, and it's it creates crispier uh, results actually. So well, crispy, crispy is great, and actually, uh, uh, so when I first started making baguettes. My friend, who is uh, who's French, he said, "Oh, did you know that uh, for bake, if you want to become a baker in France, you have to your final test is to make a baguette. Oh. That's, like the, that's like the final test. Which the implication is that it's super super difficult <laughs> to make. And you know, there's I, I've been asking my friends uh who have knowledge of what a baguette should be like and obviously it's it's always up it's up for debate debate even in france but there seems to be a few there seem to be a few bakers that have you know have described the sort of ideal sensory characteristics of mm. baguette which which maybe we can explore right now so like for example uh the crust 
it should be like if you just touch it it might be like it's really hard but then when you squeeze it it's also supposed to make like a really crackling sound and so let's try to see if you can hear this oh yes i can perfectly oh, okay yeah that actually that sounded pretty good to me <laughs> uh so it should have that hard but but thin crust that, so it's like really crispy and then inside should maybe be really okay that's, oh i'm, I'm melting yeah. here <laughs> Uh, and then inside should be like really soft and, and fluffy. Mm. And if you can see, it's like, oh yeah, it's kind of stretching a little oh, bit. Well, on the steam, wow, that looks that looks really nice. Oh, with all the holes and everything. Yeah, yeah it's really it, it it rose really well. Although it might be, well, we'll see. But so then, and wow. just one thing in between. The sour dough starter is is something is is yours. Like you did you or did you take it from someone or did you start it yourself? Yeah, we. Um, so my partner and I we made it uh, when we first moved to Finland. So about about three years ago. Okay. Um, we made it from from rye flour, mm -hmm. Finnish rye flour here, and uh, we made it in Oulu. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, the I was watching this guy who runs this sourdough library in, in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that the most, you know, when you make a sourdough starter, the water that you use when you first create it is the most important factor in like its trajectory, like its, its development or its, its living continuation as a starter. So we were in up in North, Northern Finland and we use that water there, which is really good water. Yeah. Um, and we've so now it's yeah it's about three years old now, and I feed it every day. I, I keep it on my counter because I, I bake a lot. Yeah. And oh god, sorry, I gotta I gotta put this I gotta eat this. So. Oh my god! <laughs> wow. So like, you can just eat the baguette, and there's no topping. There's no. It's just made from flour, salt, water, and and the sourdough, the, mm. the, the the leaven. But actually, when you eat it, it somehow almost tastes like there's butter on it. it like it's like already buttery. Mm. However, I did bring some butter with me here, mm. um, which I'm going to put on along with some honeycomb. And if you put on straight like raw honeycomb. It then melts into the bread and the butter, and it's it's just it's really really delicious. So I'm gonna do that right now. <laughs> In the meantime, I have to start eating too. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the filling in your what's what's what filling do you have? So yeah, so in it there is uh, first of all this is 15 sheets of phyllo, uh, put in different kinds of layers. And in, in it, there, is, there are two types of cheese, feta and grated, um, grated gouda. And uh, then sun-dried uh, tomatoes and fresh Brazil. Wow. I actually wanted to use uh, fresh tomatoes. I'm not always the biggest fan of um, the texture of uh, sun-dried tomatoes in the mouth. Uh, but, well, I thought 
you know, the fresh tomatoes have might, might have a little bit too liquid and might, may, might make inside the filo a bit too soggy, I thought. So uh, instead I just use sun-dried tomatoes. And let's try to hear the flakiness of my pastry. Oh yeah. So yeah, this is the this is the upper part. And the thing is this this crispiness and flakiness cause a little bit of a mess when you are cutting and eating. But I like the, the mess it creates and, and the little little upper the crispiest parts falling down. You can just, you know, take them and eat this kind of uh, very crispy thin layers of dough. So let's yeah, that sound. My mom used to make what she called uh, spanikopita, which I guess is the yes. Greek version, right? I think it's. Um, and that the sound that you just made just reminds me exactly of of that sound. It was it was, it was like one of my favorite dishes when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah, so. I think, yeah. Spanikopita is, I think, the one with especially the one with uh, spinach. Mm, and yeah. um, and feta, mm, yeah, yeah. So and normally uh, this kind of bereks in Turkish cuisine are very common, but um, well, people are thinking nowadays are trying new kinds of uh, fillings like what I did. But the most basic one is the one with white cheese, which is similar to feta, but not exactly, mm -hmm. uh, and and parsley. Just mix these two and you'll, go, you'll be fine. Although I like mixing uh, with different, um, with different uh, types of cheese. And uh, I think you can see that there are some different kinds of layers. Oh, that looks amazing. So what I do is um, I have a 20 to 30 centimeters uh, oven dish. And well, the, the, the sheets are of course bigger than that. So some sheets I just use flat, uh, you know, the the, the ex some parts extending from the from the uh, oven dish. But then in between, some I just uh, pull apart and create different kinds of uh, bumps and layers. So that I used to do it so that you know every every layer is very flat. But then I realized that the result in after it especially gets gets cooler uh the the pastry goes a bit down <laughs> when you do that. um so instead i found these methods and now i'm going to eat it it's quite greasy on the outside mm, yeah <laughs> okay oh yeah so i'm so the first thing that hits me is sun-dried tomatoes mm. Mm. The first thing that hit me was that crunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that if, if I bite from the corner, hmm. <laughs> now I got the crunch. Mm. And and I didn't use a lot of fresh basil, but mm, I can still get the get the refreshing uh, taste of, of the basil a little bit. And I think it was quite right amount. Nice. Okay, um, uh, I love that when when you like when you eat the thing that you've just made, you're not exactly sure how it's going to taste, but that feeling of like oh it, that's it's just the right amount 
of this ingredient. Yeah. Because yeah. or or it's like or the thought is, oh God, I put way too much salt in it or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean baking is is in that sense. I think more exciting, isn't it? Because in cooking, you can always, oh yeah, I'll add a bit more spice mm. or a bit more salt. Mm. But when you're baking, you just put in the oven <laughs> and wait for the result. You can't take out your cake in the middle and say, oh, mm, it's not, you know. It's, you know. <laughs> that's so true. And that's why I think, you know, baking is kind of like a science project. Like you have to do the right measurements and, you know, um it my my mother has this eye measurement which i hate <laughs> because it's impossible to get any um, recipes from her but for me baking is more like exact measurements and um, you know i have to say like that's before i started baking really which was only about three years ago when i moved to finland that, i mean that's what everyone says and and i it's, of course there's truth that's that's fairly true, but I've found that at least with baking with um, with sourdough, I, I think for example, cakes would be a completely different story. Yeah. But baking with sourdough, I find it. Yeah, of course you have to be, you know, I, I weigh things out in grams and stuff like that. But um, I find that there's a lot more work, like work that I've had to develop. Like skill in my hands that I've had to develop, and in, in that way, it all it feels more like an art rather than rather than just a, a science. It's like some kind of nice combination between the two because of the way that you handle the dough, the way that it gets folded, the way that I um, do the kneading, for example, and the way that I roll it up into the final shape. Uh, all of that matters in in the you know it, when it gets baked. It, it shows in the final product, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, this one of the baguettes that was on the tray just now, uh, it, it, it did what I like to call a, a dali, which is um, one of the ends of the baguettes. It, one of the baguettes was too long. So one of the ends drooped over mm -hmm. edge. <laughs> so when it came out, you know, it was like a, a Salvador Dali painting, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the drooping, drooping thing. And, you know, every, every little thing kind of, matters in the final way but it's you know there's no there's really no standard way it comes out it always comes out differently um and in that way i, I feel like it's it's this this whole process of of doing of, of putting together this thing and shaping it in a way to to get some sort of shape but you never really know what shape mm. it's going to be or how it's going to turn out um yeah i agreed with that very much, especially with bread um, or or anything that needs also a little bit kneading, like buns also, for example. Mm -hmm. And it, for example, for my blog, when I'm giving recipes with that, uh, I try to explain it so that you, you cannot rely exactly on my measurements. Mm -hmm. um, because also... The, the flour you use changes a lot, the final oh, yeah. product. Like the, somebody that is using the same flour that I am here might follow exact measurements with me. But then again, you know, I have readers from all over the world, like someone using a flour in the US may have, may have to deal with a little bit different consistency and amounts. Yeah, yeah. 
And and even I find in in Finland, you know, like there's the the vehna yao, which mm. is like the standard kind of all-purpose flower. It, even you know the it depends on the brand that I get or the the farm that I'm getting it from. Every every single vehna yao is different. Yeah. Like if I try to make the same bread with the same flour, it's always a, it's always a different thing. So now I've discovered like certain flour like flour from certain places that I, I like a lot, a lot more, even though, you know, ostensibly it's the same kind of flour. Mm-hmm. That's, that's actually been one of the biggest learning experiences. Yeah. But also like, yeah, I don't know this, I was just smelling this baguette and, and tasting it and thinking about the, you know, even though it's made with sourdough, when I was, before I knew much about sourdough, I just figured it's like sour bread like it's bread that turns sour but actually in this baguette there's no sourness at all and in some cases for things like baguettes or if it's like a cinnamon roll for example you don't really want maybe you want a tiny tang but you don't really want it sour and and the trick to to make sure that it's not sour has taken me you know two and a half years to, to figure out but this baguette is not sour at all and i I started feeling the name in English is so misleading because it's, you know, it's just sourdough, but it's not, it doesn't mean it's sour. And in fact, yeah, I mean, I was taking this hit, this lecture on bread history and this, this, this baker quoted in, in the 18th century in France talking about how, how awful it is to have sourness in your bread mm. and like ways to make, you know, this Levon, the sourdough bread, not sour. And now I'm, I'm starting to get pretty good at it. It's kind of pretty happy. And talking about bread, you have a, um, this critical bread call. Um, uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so Critical Bread Co. Uh, was born out of, um, I, would, I would attribute its birth to long the long dark winters of the Finnish north of the nordic north uh, i spent a lot of time at home you know i before i moved to finland i was living in tokyo and most of my time was spent outside the house uh but moving to olu it's much smaller and i spent a lot more time at home and that's when i started baking and um i i really fell in love with it it's like a it's such a challenge every time to make something that you really enjoy out of this bread you know it's like we said like we were just talking about it's like a surprise every time and then um actually so i I started making pizza pizza was like the thing that i really was interested in making and eventually it started getting pretty good uh and my friends kept saying, oh man, you should have like a pop-up restaurant. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't, wasn't really thinking about doing that kind of thing. But over time and as I kept doing it uh, and I was ending the, nearing the end of my studies of, of my, the master's degree I was doing, there was, it became clear that there was going to be like at least a semester where I didn't have school and I, I needed to find some way to make a little money. So then I, I was talking with my partner and we, we 
thought like, oh, maybe we can, maybe we could sell bread to like my friends or something like that. And I ended up getting connected with one of the cafes at University of Olu, mm -hmm. the student run cafes. And they, they, you know, I baked them some cookies and they were like, yeah, you, you should sell, we can sell your bread and, and cookies at, at our cafe. Mm -hmm. So then that's, that's kind of how it was, it was born. I, I then spent the next uh, semester, like every morning, bringing fresh, fresh bread. Fresh, everything was made from sourdough, and the, the idea of it, because I was studying education, was to kind of be an educational thing. So I made like some flyers about the philosophy of, you know, you making bread in this kind of old way or kind of ancient way, uh, using local, locally produced, locally grown and milled flours from from local farmers to so that it's when you eat the bread, you know, you're tasting something that is from this particular place. Like it's distinctive. There, there isn't any other way or any other place where you're going to find the same kind of bread. Every baker is, will have a different way, but every flower in this area will also taste, you know, different depending on, on where it's grown. And, and flowers grown even in the same area up there had different characteristics, even though, like I said, they were the same, mm. they were both all purpose flour, but they had, you know, one had a more of a cinnamony kind of scent to it that you could, was really distinctive when you took it out of the bag. Um, so this was the idea to kind of uh, engage, you know, students, university students in this idea of food as something, you know, kind of, because these, these uh, connections of, this older technique and and like locality uh, are directly connected to the sustainability of, of food and food systems, which is now what my my research is is about. So for me, that's it was this whole kind of project. It was fun, first of all. Uh, I got to share bread. I got to make a little bit of money, but also I got to kind of uh, do this project where I had a flyer and we did some events like I did a sourdough Santa where I, I brought a bunch of sourdough and we did a sensory tasting of store-bought bread and, and the sourdough bread and they could smell sourdough and they could smell the dry yeast which I dissolved in the water and then the fresh yeast which I dissolved in the water mm -hmm. and they I mean there's a huge difference in, in the smell between the two of them the, the ones the yeast from the store smell disgusting <laughs> and, and the the sourdough either smells really fruity or a bit vinegary and soury you know it's yeah. completely different and and they all do the exact same thing they all even the bread uh so but yeah so it's connected to you know to fermentation to health to environment sustainability so for me it was like this total package project that also i was able to make a little bit of money from so so can we say that what we just did in the beginning, the whole tasting and describing and, and, and eating, <laughs> like an example of uh, sensory ethnography? Mm. And if we can, then can you, um, even though the listeners experienced it uh, by listening, uh, can you give, it, give more of a uh, formal a sort of description about what sensory ethnography is for the listeners. Yeah, yeah, sure. Do you, if you don't mind, I'm just going to take one bite. Oh, yes, okay. please do. <laughs> I'll do as well. 
I could hear that perfectly. <laughs> and also, um, while giving the um, um, description, uh, can you explain how you connect or, or relate sensory ethnography or all these or these multisensory approaches to to sustainability, especially food sustainability? And and what it what do you think it brings to the existing conversation about sustainability? Right. Um, yeah, it's it's a really good question because I think it's not completely clear right, the connection between something like sensory ethnography or or you know, studying the senses is not exactly clear how it's related to sustainability. I think one reason, one reason for that is because this, this, um, it's a fairly recent, as in the last three decades or so, a field of study, of serious academic study. To be uh, here, I want to just cut you here a little bit. I, I you know, I read your uh, hmm. master's thesis and actually from your thesis, I could you explain that very well, but uh, for me, when I first started reading, I had no idea like how can it really be connected with sustainability. So in that sense, uh, reading your thesis was a very good, uh, very good. Uh, like you had a very good study on that, <laughs> <laughs> just for the listeners to 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 understand. But yeah, it it doesn't uh, automatically. Uh, bring something in mind, even for someone like me who's working on sustainability for a very long time. Well, so my, my, I guess my theory, I would say why that is, is because the, the senses or the study of the senses, uh, has, has traditionally been the, the kind of domain of, of like psychology or, or neuropsychology. So we know a lot about sensation, the way that we taste or, or, or something like this or hear uh, from a particular angle, a particular perspective, which, uh, in, for example, in psychology, if they, when, you, when they study taste, they, they tend to study taste as, uh, as an, in isolation, I suppose. So they're looking exactly like how are people experiencing this taste and you know they. This is also in in food science in the food industry. It's how big companies make food taste in different ways because it's it's connected to how people what people like or what what they don't like. Uh, but taste is considered as a, an isolated like singular thing. Um, but what the way that it's and and so the reason uh, because of that when we think about senses, it's probably not obvious that it can be connected to sustainability and the reason so th that would be the the reason but um for me this sensory ethnography and, and sensory studies is is very deeply connected with sustainability so a, a couple of reasons why that is first of all the this field of sensory studies which is fairly new is the main thing it's trying to do is bring the study of sensation out of these the psychological and neurobiological uh, perspective on what senses is and 
in doing that, um, you find that actually, you know, what is talk, what are talked about as like, let's say the five senses, these are actually just, a, a, a culturally situated representation of sensation. So the five senses are, are rooted in, in actually in Greek, you know, uh, understanding of what sensation is. But if you go around the world through, throughout history and throughout different cultures and places, there are, you know, everybody has a different understanding of how many senses there are from two senses to seven senses. And the senses might, one of the senses might be talking or, it might not even be the five that we're thinking of. So the idea, first of all, is that our sensory orders are basically, you know, tied to culture and, and place, and they're not universal. But the second, I, the second point is that sensation is never, sensation never works in isolation. So it's all, all sensation is always multisensory. Mm-hmm. And that, that idea the fact of that, so when you set, if you're a psychologist and you're studying just taste, well, you're, you're cutting out all of the other factors that go into your experience of taste. So if you eat food in a restaurant, you're not just eating the food like with a blindfold on, you're eating the food with an atmosphere around you with a particular kind of, you know, the atmosphere is created by the sounds, by who you're with, by the sights, by the smells. You're, it's this whole experience which also affects how you, you experience the taste of this food, right? So in, in taking, how, how is sensory ethnography or sensory, the senses connected to sustainability? Um, so one of, the, one of the main critiques from like sustainable sustainability uh, is that, you know, one of the problems with, with society and the, the world in general is that there's been a disconnect, mm. you know, between uh, there's some kind of disconnect between humans and the world that has allowed, you know, opened a space for humans to kind of uh, destroy the world, destroy the environment. And one of the kind of ideas for that is because there's, we humans, especially really in the West and, and now more hegemonically. So, have have understood ourselves to be you know masters of the world that we are we can take from it whatever we we need without um considering the repercussions or without any reciprocity or or respect for it and we can think about it like that only because we're disconnected from it so sensation actually is really profound, really profoundly, fundamentally invo- uh, involved in the. I would say maybe the the ontological or, or the, the phenomenological or even uh, the epistemological foundations of of sustainability. Mm-hmm. So by basically like um, if you're by fore, foregrounding sensation, uh, you're by paying attention to sensation and the senses. In effect, what you're doing is you're paying attention to our basically to our inextricability or, or our our emplacement in the world that you know we can never actually be a part of, mm-hmm. or sorry that we can never actually yeah be separate from. 
even though we might think we're like, well, wow, we don't maybe necessarily think that way, but we, we might act that way. But by paying attention to our, our sensory experiences of every day and becoming more in tune with uh, how we connect with the world, it's a possible route to closing this, to reconnecting, to understanding ourselves as bound up in, in the world. And in doing so, hopefully the idea would be to create the possibility where a, you know, attention to sensation and our, and our being in the world uh, helps us to think through how to act in the world in a more respectful, uh, regenerative, or uh, sustainable way. Yeah. So at a very, very fundamental level, sensation is, is really, you know, you know, the bottom line of, of where we might begin to thinking about sustainability. So it, it would be like rather than thinking or, or talking about sustainability, it would be rather being sustainable. So it's, it's a practice rather than it's being sustainable in the world rather than, you know, talking about sustainability for the world, for example. And, I, and it creates this kind of long-term commitment. I mean, you, you, it, it makes you kind of, I think, uh, like not really as... I, I see that some people are, are uh, preferring sustainable lifestyles because they feel responsible and, and something, but there's, there's just some very you know, intellectual... Uh, reason like okay the world is going this way we should do this like this and that but maybe not fully uh, being still part of it but just you know believing that they should do and then uh, they, they act this way but uh, I think from what you uh, describe uh, it becomes it becomes really your life yeah like you can't uh, think any other way anymore and especially this kind of i like a lot this kind of being connected uh, again with the with the with the world uh, especially in the food uh, domain because no well i'm a little bit uh, nowadays uh, the especially young people don't even don't know at all where their food is coming from and uh, they don't see uh, all, the, all these, you know, processes. And I mean, yeah, no, and so this is exactly right. I mean, and that's why uh, for me, sensory, this sensory approach became really, really exciting be precisely because food is one of those, I mean, food is at the, it's, it's what food and the production of it is how civilizations become large you know uh and that disconnect that i was just speaking of it's so it's nowhere is it more clear than in food people when you don't know where your food is coming from when you don't know what's in your food uh so for me food was food is you know i'm i'm kind of uh I, i'm really the deep love of food i'm a huge food geek and for me this uh, the sen the sensation of food, food is never studied. It's always talked about in terms of nutrition or it's talked about in terms of how are we going to feed the world? But it's, it's uh, until recently, it's been, it hasn't been much talked about the experience of food and how that 
re how that uh, the possibility of how it can reconnect us with our with the world in which we live yeah. so like like i was saying earlier with the the different flowers you know use it when i when i was baking and realizing like but this is the same flower it, you know the fact that it has completely different characteristics of the way that it builds gluten network or the way that it it tastes depending on where on who i'm getting it from even if those places were in the same you know the same area it's it's different and and that for me that that would be maybe one example of of attending to the sensory experience of food which is then able to tell me something about where my food is coming from and you know it it's very different than for example if i buy uh bread from the store and the taste of that bread is it's i don't know what it is i don't know where it's from so it could be for example interpreted as the taste of you know the global uh, uh food and industrial agribusiness like that it's the taste of that because yeah. it's disconnected like i don't know where else it's from mm. and by by attending to taste and knowing taste so taste as knowledge and you know for the longest time in the west uh start you know from greek from greek all, all the way to rene descartes and especially with immanuel kant who basically said you know sight vision is like the most knowledgeable of the senses and smell and taste like you can't get any knowledge from them but actually you you like you know of course you can it's it's preposterous to think that tastes that there's no knowledge in taste so uh the, the thinking of the study or the attention to taste and sensation if you attend to it as a form of knowledge then all of a sudden that you you begin finding knowledge the problem is that it hasn't been considered something that ha- contains knowledge so it hasn't been uh framed that way for example in education which is where i i first came into this um and in research in doing research in doing sensory ethnography for example by attending to sensation the way that people perceive you know in ways that they can't express but also in the categories that they use to talk about it so the five senses for example you know but by following those in uh in sensory ethnography you begin to understand or you begin to uh different ways of knowing the world begin to reveal themselves that are in, impossible to to see if you're not attending to how people are you know sensing or are experiencing their everyday life via sensation mm-hmm. so for me that's it's it's a really profound and exciting way of not only living it or being because as a sensory ethnographer you you also have to 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 do that you have to embody that through and through mm-hmm. um and you have to you know so so for me that it's just a really exciting uh possibility for a different kind of knowledge which i i find very uh profound for you know the potential of sustain of thinking about sustainability or thinking with sustainability mm-hmm. um talking about what we talked uh, a little bit about uh your thesis but you you went uh, to to you did your field work in an eco village in italy um so and it was very interesting to read um so can you talk a little bit about this this eco village um 
that you visited and maybe a few of the most memorable most interesting learning moments you had there yeah yeah sure um it was a yeah it was a really you know profound experience <laughs> to, to say the least mm -hmm. uh it actually when i first started uh con connecting with them i wasn't i was still in the you know i wasn't sure exactly how i was going to do this research um but as i as i started getting closer to going there and i was reading more it became more and more clear that oh i could i could do sensory ethnography about like on this this eco village the eco village was you know the the sort of baseline of the eco village is is the farm that they uh you know the farm grows food they it's connected to the community you know they they sell it in local farmers markets and uh they have all these things so it's you know the eco village kind of operates through and around food you know that's the central sort of mechanism and i was interested at that time because i was studying education how you know how people learn about sustainability through these like you know the, the everyday encounters on the farm because the farm is the farm was well, the farm is a, a biodynamic it's not i guess it would be agroecological they use a lot of different methods for growing they use biodynamic methods they use permaculture methods they use you know the the people from the area have uh in piemonte they've been there for generations as farmers so there's already a lot of a lot of really deep knowledge that that is embedded there so they, they use all different kinds of methods but the, the point is to to be regenerative of the soil right to build soil rather than destroy it and in doing so you know you could say that's a practice of sustainability in in this and when you learn how to farm that way and you think about sensation if you follow sensation in that context you then begin to understand what learning about sustainability well learning what learning what sustainability is and how it is made every day through these farming practices uh then becomes you know if you didn't follow uh these everyday practices and particularly sensation sensation is kind of the marker that that kind of puts things in a concrete uh way of of representing them but then you know so I was there for about two months and um, yeah, I, you know, I had, I think the thing that comes to mind most is picking peaches. <laughs> uh, yeah. Picking peaches was something we did nearly every day. Uh, there were like, there were five or six or six different types of peaches. And there were a couple little areas on the farm that had a different peach trees and they all come become ripe at different times. And you have to first. You have to prune some of the peaches, like pull pull off the ones that aren't going to grow. And then, when they get ready, you have to pick them on the right day. Because at, at the farm, they would pick them ripe, and then you know uh, take them immediately to be sold, as opposed to you know in the industry, you pick a peach like two months before it's ripe, but then it ripens off the off the tree. So these peaches, you know, so we're going there every day in the morning. And the first thing you do is grab a, a peach and you, you eat it. 
Uh, and, and it's really important part of the process of picking peaches is eating them because it informs you of how a peach is ripe and how to tell it's ripe, mm -hmm. what it, what it feels like when you, not only what it looks like, but what it feels like and what it smells like. Um, and then, you know, finally what it, the, the taste, tasting it is like the final confirmation, right? So like you could, for example, the, the, the practice of picking peaches is a really, you know, multi-sensory uh, experience. So, you know, at first it might seem like, oh, picking peaches is based on your sight, you know, because you're looking at a peach and you're looking for a peach that's mostly orange, orangish, you know, the, some of these peaches were, it's maybe it's yellowish in some spot, but so that would be the first thing like, okay, you might see a peach and, and think like, okay, that one looks ripe. So the second thing you do is, you know, you, you, well, first thing I would say is like, how do you know a peach is ripe just by looking at it? Well, you could, you could start to make that assumption only if you've ever tasted a peach before. Mm -hmm. So you know that eating that biting into a red or orange peach is a pleasing sensation, right? It has that text, this, this peachy texture and the juiciness and the, it makes a particular sound when, when you eat it, as opposed to eating like a raw, like a peach that's not ripe yet, it's a completely different sound. So all of these attributes uh, are, have already happened to the point where I can look at the peach and make a guess like, oh, that looks ripe. So already, just by looking at the peach, it's already a multi-sensory, you're already drawing from a multi-sensory history and memory of experience. Yeah. So you look at the peach, then you, you feel it to see if there's, if it's a bit tender and soft. And if it feels, if it feels too hard, I might leave it, might wait for the next day. But if it feels just like it's giving, giving way a little bit when I squeeze it, then okay, I, and I'll, if I can, I'll, I'll try to get my nose up to it to smell like, is it giving off that, that aroma that's like, that says like, oh, I'm, I'm ripe, eat me right now. If those things, yeah, then I'll pull it off. And, it, you know, if it was like the beginning of the peach picking, I might bite into it. Because occasionally you might bite into it, you might think it's right, but you, when you bite into it, it's, you, might, you might feel like, oh, wait, it's not quite there. So, but doing that again every day, every day, every day, by at a certain point, you become really skilled at picking peaches that are, that are ripe. And there was this really... Um, this just this fantastic moment where there was a, another guy who had just come to the farm as a volunteer. He was, he had just been there for a few days and we were out picking peaches and we were supposed to put, you know, the, um, the farm director told us to pick, uh, you know, peaches just from this row. Cause we don't want to pick peaches from the other row yet. It still needs like another week or so. And, um, so we were, we picked, all the, pe the peaches that we could. And then, but the other guy was like, well, I think these ones are ripe over here. And, and we were saying, well, he, he told us not to pick them and they, they still look a little, you know, they're starting to turn orange, but they still not quite right. But he, he, he chose not really to listen to us. So uh, he came back uh, up, to the, up to the house, like, you know, 45 minutes later with like four crates of, of these peaches that he, he wasn't really supposed to pick. And I was like, are, are you sure those are ripe? And he was like, yeah, of course they are. Like, 
look at them. And I was like, okay, so did you, did you taste them? And he's like, no, but here. And he, and he grabbed one and he put it in his mouth and he bit down and the sound that it made was just, it was like an apple. Yeah. And the face that he made, you know, this really bitter, like, and, you know, he, and he couldn't, he spit it out and you saw on his face that he's like, oh man, these, these are not ripe. And then, you know, those, um, those peaches that he picked, they ended up going rotten because they, they were picked too early and they couldn't be sold. And yeah. So anyway, that, that was a really interesting moment. Was because as I was asking this question, I had this story in my mind, particularly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting that you put, you also chose it uh, yourself. Um, um, but but then, what is next for you? Yeah, what's next? Well, um, I'm I'm still in the process of of looking for for funding for this research project that. So basically the project is uh, part of it is going back to this eco village um, in Italy. And part of it is, is doing a similar research here in Helsinki. It, it's no longer about like education and learning, but it's about um, how it's more about, I guess you could say regional or local development mm -hmm. of food systems um, and how these, you know, uh, different like let's say local actors in the food systems are who that are trying to do things in sustainable ways or regenerative ways particularly uh rooted in agriculture but also connected with food processing and food distribution and stuff you know if a distributor wants to connect local uh agroecological farmers with you know consumers locally who want them then that's that would be one of the people that i would want to work with uh so seeing how seeing how this ecosystem that's developing here in helsinki quite robustly and has been in place in in italy for quite a while and it's always still developing so seeing how these local regional food systems uh are developing um amidst a few things so amidst uh within a market that is basically saturated by uh food and and global agribusiness yeah. uh in so the question is like how can these small regenerative farms be um economically viable in such a such an environment then um how they're these people who are who are pursuing sustainability how are they reacting or what are the the challenges that are posed by climate change and and you know biodiversity loss etc and and also now the pandemic so these different factors are are there they're hanging there well they're not just hanging there they're they're very present in our lives even if we can't see them or touch them or feel them uh, in in the case of climate change they very well may be felt you know the way that the weather changes and affects the way that food is grown and the way that the that the operations of food for growing and producing uh distributing etc are affected by these kinds of things so i'm i'm hoping to look at these kinds of processes and and from this sensory perspective uh you know the idea is to uncover sort of 
overlooked ways of uh, practices that these people are engaging in, which, which would be much more difficult or impossible to see from a more traditional, uh, you know, scientific approach. But that said, you know, uh, there's another tool that I, I'm, I wanted to develop, which is kind of helps to map or paint a picture of what the local food system ecosystem looks like, the links between it, um, and it's, a, it's about resiliency. So, like, are the links and the actors in the system, you know, are they linked together in ways that create resiliency in the, in the face of a pandemic or in the face of shocks that will come from climate change and, and this kind of stuff. So using this sensory approach and also this tool to kind of map resiliency, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in process, not like a, okay, here it's mapped and now it's like tucked away and it's uh, it's a piece of information that's just going to be there. It's a, it's a tool that allows, because it's a qualitative tool, it's not, doesn't quantify it's, it allows for the continued development of the tool and uh, as a kind of dynamic, uh, a dynamic thing that could then be ideally used by activists or, or actors in the local food systems and also then policy, because it's really important that policy and agriculture are super, super tied up, you know, bound up with each other. So it's really important for policymakers uh, whether they're in Finland or whether they're in Italy or whether they're in the United States, anywhere, to know what kind of incentives, for example, what kind of laws need to be put in place to protect or promote these kinds of practices. Yes. So that's my project. I'm still I'm still looking for funding mm. for it. So um, yeah, that's uh, I guess it's part of the process for for lots of yeah. PhD. <laughs> and I hope, well, I do hope that we'll see one day all these policies really, uh, or, or all these words turning into policies in real life. And uh, there, there's a big gap between all these hard work in the grassroots level or, you know, in, in different countries, in dif by different NGOs, activists, farmers, and consumers. But then it's never or it's very, very rarely uh, translating into real policies that shape the, the, the global system. So I do hope that you, you, your work helps with it. Yeah, yeah. thanks. I, I, I think, you know, the time, the time is, is coming upon us when it's, uh, it, it can't be pushed aside or anymore. So hopefully, hopefully it would be timely. I agree. Um, well, these are all my questions. Uh, do you have any final comments, any final words? The, the final word is yours. Um, well, I just want to say thanks for having me. And then the last thing I want to say is this. Oh my God, perfect. <laughs> okay, then. Uh, see you. Um, well, we'll see you. And uh, good luck for the continuation of your work. Bye. Thank you very much.